everyone. It's Monday, December 19th, 2016 at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and this is Admissions Live. I'm your host, Erin Sapinka, and on today's live broadcast, we're speaking about recruiting for STEM programs. I'm excited to speak with Dr. Randy Swear, Vice President of Education at Autodesk, about this topic today. But first, let's give a quick shout out to the sponsors that make today's broadcast possible. Admissions Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network, offering viewers direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Live webcasts allow viewers to share knowledge and participate in discussions around the most important issues in the industry. Today's live viewing experience is powered by Maestro, the premier marketing tech platform for broadcasters. All episodes of Admissions Live are free and accessible in the video archives at higheredlive.com and in podcast form on iTunes. Today's episode is made possible by Chegg Enrollment Services. Chegg recently published Teens Talk, an in-depth look at key influencers on college-bound teens at each phase of their college search. The research study dives into the role of digital, print, and social media, the role digital, print, and social media have when their students find, research, and engage the schools on their college list. Download this study and, and more at edu.chegg.com slash downloads. And as always, check out edu.chegg.com slash insights to stay up to date on the latest research and best practices for digital student engagement. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. Is it time for a website checkup? If you're worried about that your site isn't me memorable or nervous that your institution won't stand out from every other school that's knocking on prospective students' doors, a website checkup is your first step. We're tweeting out a link shortly where you can learn more. And now on to my guest. I'm excited to welcome Randy to our show. And thank you so much for joining me on this Monday and one of our last shows in 2016. I can't believe 2017 is right around the corner. Um, could you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, your role and history with higher education? And then I'd love to learn more about Autodesk and its role in education. First, Erin, uh, it's just, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, one of my favorite topics, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Um, so um, my background is in higher ed leadership mostly. I went up to the 10-year ranks at University of Texas at Austin, but then I became Dean of Parsons School of Design in Manhattan for six years. Um, I then moved in via provost at Philadelphia University and a bunch of stuff in between there. So I'm really grounded in higher ed, higher ed leadership, faculty, the world, all that kind of thing. And then I came to Autodesk about 18 months ago. Um, and Autodesk is, you know, it's kind of an unusual thing actually for a, a company like Autodesk to hire someone like me, but they really feel, um, they kind of understand there's this big disruption that's kind of rolling across higher ed right now. And they really want to get inside it. They want to understand it uh, because they're really committed to education, but they, they see the space changing so quickly. Um, and so that's what I'm here to do. I help kind of interface the company with the, particularly with the higher ed sector and um, help it understand what trends are occurring out there and how to align the company and the company's future so that it can add value um, to all this disruption as it's beginning to, to unfold and help, help actually also to take a leadership position. So um, we, in a very practical sense, my group also um, is engaged with all manner of projects with higher ed. We want to encourage innovative, deep use of our tools. Um, and so we give out grants and work with teachers and professors and students and students clubs to integrate our advanced technologies deeply into the classroom. And uh, you want to hear a little bit more about Autodesk, I think, too. Yes, right? I actually, we were talking before we signed on, um, 
I actually got one of the, when Autodesk first went free to students, particularly in education, um, I was at one of the first sessions at my alma mater, RIT, and got, and I still have my, I wish I would have remembered to grab it, but I still have the USB drive. They actually handed the software out. And I remember sitting there and not 100% convinced that this was actually mine to take no home and use. <laughs> yeah, no one is really, but so, you know, the company is really committed to education. And a couple of years ago, um, decided that it was just going to forego like $200 million of revenue and give away all of its software for free to students and faculty, right? And um, anybody kind of associated with directly an academic institution. One of the best things that we ever did because the, the uses of the tools and the, what we learn from the use of those tools is just remarkable. We have these incredible feedback loops now around the world that feed the incredible creativity of students and faculty back into our products and product development. But what the company does is, you know, we, we make the tools that make things, right? So anything from uh, the special effects in movies, almost all of which come through Autodesk tools, to products, product development, buildings, infrastructure, all that is mostly done with, with Autodesk tools. And you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited about the topic today is that so many of the tools are focused on making things. And one of the things that, that I think we've all learned about STEM over the years, and we can talk more about it when we get into it, is that making things is actually an amazing way of engaging students and faculty with STEM and, and by extension, STEAM, the STEM with art in it. Yeah, um, again, we, like before, when we were talking, before we went on air, it was just, it was an opportunity for me to explore this new passion I had found and never had a chance to kind of test out in my high school was the design and the, the developing and all of these different experiences. And up until then, tools were not readily available to me. But as soon as this was, um, I downloaded it, plopped it on my computer, suddenly I was working with the software and I was able to figure out quickly, is this something that I can see myself working with or is this something that maybe I'm more on the content side? And so I ended up down a pathway that was a little bit of both. And it's just putting the tools in the hands of these students um, I work every night on a Thursday on a farm because I still like to work with my hands and I'm so I use I'm on the computer all the time that I forget the manual labor aspect of life sometimes and it's just really great to be grounded in that way. Exactly. I mean I, I, I do think one of the things about the about tools, like the kinds of tools that we have, is that they they tend to integrate disciplines too, right? And increasingly the way to our tools like Fusion 360 it's a tool, it's a tool for making things, but it's also a tool to create a collaborative environment, right? That stretches across disciplines, sectors, professions, and brings knowledge together and synthesizes it in a way that then you can use to make something. So we also find this integrative function, I think, that tools can have. So, yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, the stuff I've seen people do uh, with our advanced software is just amazing since I've been here. It's, been, it's a treat to go on campuses, actually and just see the incredible creativity that students and faculty have and how they innovate and improvise um, with this technology. Um, so we've mentioned it a couple of times, and I'm sure most of our viewers are aware of what STEM is, but could you walk us through STEM? And we did mention yeah. STEAM already too, so we yeah, can sure. discuss yeah, no, that no, one no. too. Um, so, so STEM, STEM it, it actually has a long history with us, and I won't bore your audience with the history, but let's just do the quickest Cliff Notes Kind of version of this thing 
um, really, you know, we got really focused as a country down on STEM-related fields with, with Sputnik. I think that's almost a cliche at this point. There's massive amounts of money being invested by the federal government um, in STEM-related education. At the same time, you have the public research universities are just taking off during the 1960s, and money is flooding into them. So you had the build-out of this system and STEM disciplines simultaneously in it. So now you can't really think of a public research university without thinking about the critical importance of STEM. But, but STEM actually, as a kind of movement, it got going in the 1990s. A number of educational bodies, including the National Science Foundation, they started making recommendations about how to structure STEM disciplines, of guidelines for uh, curricula and so on. And by the way, it, was free. it wasn't called STEM at first. It was called SMAT, which, which they had the good, they had the good, uh, the good sense <laughs> to change the term from SMAT. Not an attractive name. <laughs> I know, I know, you know. I mean, somebody came in from, from the marketing group and said, SMAT, forget it. Um, and then in the 2000s, you really, and that was kind of when STEM was, as an acronym, was invented. And then in the 2000s, you had a report that came out from the Academies of Science and Engineering Medicine, and basically, it, it had some ominous, what was the name of that? It's called like the Gathering Storm, or something like that, right? That the US is falling behind in STEM. We had been way out in front. This unleashed this incredible drive to promote science, technology, and engineering and math as never, as never before. And you had then the Obama administration just grab this and run with it created these initiatives that are kind of amazing. Like, we're gonna create 100,000 new STEM teachers over 10 years. And they're halfway there right now. We're gonna, and they created these initiatives like Educate to Innovate and all this stuff. So then STEM became cemented, really, in our consciousness, and tons of money is going into it, and a lot of really interesting creative thinking around it, too. But I think, you know, we mentioned STEM. So, so STEAM, Right, and I think I'll, probably a lot, most people who are listening to this probably know this, but I'll just, I'll, I'll state it anyway. So STEAM is like STEM, but you stick an A in the middle of it for art, right? And it came, it came out of the Rhode Island School of Design and John Maeda there about five, six years ago. It was kind of like, hey, there's all this stuff happening in the STEM. We, we want, like, pay attention to us too. So we're going to put the A in it. And I think STEAM is really interested, interesting because we know that STEM alone, like you need creativity involved in STEM to really drive the kind of innovation that we're looking for in our economy right now. But honestly, STEAM is way under theorized. I mean, we need to really be thinking much more about what does that A really mean as a collective with those other, um, with those other disciplines. And I think there's, there's, a great, there's a great opening, research opening and practice opening for people to kind of get in there, beginning to think about the relationship between not so much art, but creativity and science, technology, engineering, and math. So that's that's the history of STEM, and it's kind of led us to this place where it has a it has a prominence in our economy now and in our educational system, which is really kind of remarkable and um, and 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 unprecedented, really. I think in the history of education, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, it's it's in almost every conversation when we look at prospective students and recruitment and how our universities and schools are viewed by students across the country and the world. It's it's really um, I've been working in admissions since I was an undergrad. And I mean, at a 
at an institute that was focused on technology, it was always a part of our day to day. But what was really kind of blowing my mind was the schools that I had applied to or been interested in, or even in my high school, how it quickly became sudden, like our school completely flipped direction from being really arts heavy to suddenly saying, we need to have these opportunities for our science students and our engineering students and the students that are interested in architecture because before we were really focused on arts and there was no avenue for STEM students to explore past AP bio and AP calculus. And it's really interesting too, I mean, in that regard, you, I'm seeing some of those fascinating, innovative, creative things happening at in, around STEM and STEAM that I just would have never expected. Like the Maryland Institute College of Art has just submitted a grant to the NSF mm -hmm. for this amazing ecosystem they want to create in Baltimore, bringing together maker spaces, right? And they have a lot of them there, right? And, yeah. and kind of very interesting ones. Um, industries, and they've got some really kind of advanced, in, in terms of advanced manufacturing and sort of uh, tech industry that they want to bring into this ecosystem. And um, academic institutions like Johns Hopkins. And they're blending all this together with a, a micro-credentialing system that is about driving STEM learning for the broader community, students, but in the broader community as well, through academic institutions, makerspaces, and businesses. So who would have ever thought, right? But that's what's happening right now. A lot of creativity in places we wouldn't we wouldn't expect it. Um, and so we've touched on a little bit, but and you mentioned with the Obama administration, all of this focus from resources and grants. What has made STEM so important so quickly over this past yeah. decade? Yeah, well, okay, so um, that the gathering storm report really, I mean, I remember when that came out, that really got people's attention. And it was intended to do something, it was authored to do so. There is, you know, it's, we're, we're projected, and I should tell you that these numbers are somewhat disputed, but regardless of the exact number, there will be a significant shortage of STEM workers over the next decade, right? So there's, the, the projection is like a million. That's what you'll hear everywhere, aware that there's a about a million shortage. A lot of people dispute that, but it doesn't really matter. There will be a significant shortage, and STEM does contribute so strongly to the economy, and therefore to the lifestyle of most Americans and into our national security. So all these different issues are, are, are interwoven. And then you have all this stuff coming out about how Look, the good jobs that are coming out are in, frankly, STEM. Most of them are going to be in the high-paying jobs, um, the uh, entrepreneurial, the innovative jobs. A lot of them are going to involve at least touch on STEM. But I think, so, so, so those are some very concrete reasons why STEM has become so important. But let's step back for a minute and look at the broader kind of macroeconomic and societal kinds of issues. Because if you really look at STEM today and kind of it's become very important in our current environment. But we've we've witnessed the restructuring of our economy, right? Over the last 20, 30 years, our economy has gone through this remarkable transformation from mass manufacturing to, to that that is about making stuff in these really long production cycles to generating kind of the ideas um, that develop and integrate STEM with other disciplines to create new products and services, right? So, so STEM becomes this really important glue integrated often with other disciplines to drive innovation. And these new product cycles for these 
these new uh, this new generation of products, they're really short. They can be a matter of weeks or months, not years. And so this drive to constantly innovate is part of what's behind this push toward toward STEM and and for um, and and for STEAM. And I should say this is one of the reasons why Autodesk gave away is it decided that it was going to give away two hundred million dollars of software for free because we have we we have skin in this game, right? We hire these people. And we were seeing that we have a, a potential crisis that's beginning to unfold, and we we that was part of the decision. Let's let's give away the two hundred million dollars of software because we know it drives STEM learning. Our CEO Carl Bass, who was a couple a bunch of engineers were asking like how how should we change engineering education to make it more uh, um, um, interesting and engaging for students? He said he just said how people make stuff, you know. And it's true, so um, that was that was part of what uh, that was part of what was behind that impulse. I um I can remember when I was looking at colleges and helping. I'm the oldest of four, so I've had three siblings that have followed through college in some aspect of ed further education. Um, engineering was like, oh, you need to be good at math. Like that was that yeah, exactly. was the first and seemed like only requirement. And since I wasn't good at math, I liked building stuff. My dad's a mechanic. I had been working on cars since I was a child. But it was like, no, I can't do math. I'm out. That's it. I'm over. <laughs> no engineering in my future. So that that um, that limit I have I've seen moved and changed to be more encompassing of, are you a maker? Are you an innovator? Are you entrepreneurial versus, well, can you do calculus? <laughs> and I think, you know, there, there's a lot, there, there's a bunch of studies that, that have come out about engineering, educa engineering education. One of the problems we have is the persistence of students through engineering and mm -hmm. actually STEM disciplines in general. We have like a dropout rate in education of, of 50%, actually more broadly in STEM of about 50%. Mm -hmm. You know that's a real that's a real problem, and and how do you how do you fix that? Well, one of the ways is to engineers have to learn math. I mean, they just have to. It's just part of what engineering is about. It's part of that kind of foundational method of inquiry. But the way that you teach math, how much you teach, when has a huge impact, right, on whether or not the students, especially underrepresented students, um, whether or not they're gonna. That they're going to persist. So there's lots of interesting thinking going on right now about how do we how to retain more students. What tweaks can we make to uh, to the curriculum, and how can we engage them with entrepreneurship in particular, um, driving social impact, which this generation is very focused on with engineering and making in general. Um, so we're talking a little bit now about recruiting. What what are some of the biggest challenges you see for recruiting for these types of programs? Even though schools across the nation are increasing their focus, yeah. it's still it's yeah. still a challenge to get butts in the seat. <laughs> it is it is a challenge, and it's a challenge to get butts in the seat that'll stay. Um, so it's you have this simultaneous problem. You have this huge attrition rate. And then you're mm -hmm. this top of the funnel thing. You're constantly putting students top of the funnel, and then they're trading out. So you got to work on both together. But I feel really strongly about this this recruitment issue. I mean, um, first of all, we've got a big image problem with STEM disciplines, and this has to do with you know we are now in a world at higher ed 
is just beginning to understand that we're in this kind of post-industrial world, right? It's a very different economy and society. And our view of the way we present the STEM disciplines has got to change. It's not this old kind of 20th century industrial age view of STEM as like the nerd with the taped up glasses. Look, I, I have our interns around Autodesk who are coming from STEM, most of them. Um, I'd say 90% of them. Mm -hmm. They are some of the coolest, <laughs> coolest students ever. I mean, they are so engaged and smart and connected and socially fluent. But but we don't we don't project we don't project this image in the way that we need to. And I think admissions offices need to consciously deal with this issue of of representing what a STEM student is and their a social ecosystem that they exist in at, at school, because I think there's also this this image on there kind of isolated and I'm gonna be working as a kind of loner on my own. But this is really important. I think I think universities are actually really, really bad at this, all right? So when you recruit for STEM, don't focus on the disciplines themselves, right? The higher ed loves talking about itself, like it's about the discipline of this or the discipline of that. It's not about the disciplines, it's about what you can do with the disciplines, right? And this kind of gets back to one of my favorite quotes from um, the Harvard um, educational theorist, Tony Wagner. You know, today learning's not about what you know in a world of commoditized knowledge. It's not what you know, but it's what you can do with what you know, right? That is what recruiting needs to be about. How can you present to students um, a narrative about what they can do by going through STEM. What, what kinds of agency will they have that they don't have when they get in? And what does that agency mean for them asserting their presence in the world in ways that will really make a difference? That's what recruiting has to be about, right? Yep, um, and kind of in that same line, many institutions, I think pretty much all of them can, actually Dartmouth where I'm at last year graduated 50% women in their engineering class, which yeah. was one of the yeah, first. Way ahead. Way ahead. Nice. <laughs> but I know I can't. I come from Rochester Institute of Technology, where when I started, it was two to one guys to girls, just over campus in general. If you looked more uh, granular at some of the disciplines and majors, it was a much larger discrepancy. And so, how? how do we what steps can we take to uh, encourage more women and not just women but other underrepresented yeah, populations to apply and get involved in these degrees and these disciplines i totally agree with you i mean the underrepresented group it's a big issue and as a company we're very we're looking at this issue too i mean how can we help um how can we help in this area because again we we have skin in the game here um look i, I so i saw this this uh, a study that was done by the girl scout Right, this was a while ago. Uh, I, I can't remember, it was, you know, six, 12 months ago, maybe even longer. But 60% of girls had never met or didn't know they had met a woman from a STEM field. 60% mm -hmm. <laughs> and tragic. Yeah. And, and I do think, you know, again, study after study shows. Um, You've got to have those mentors and role models. You've got to expose them to these audiences um, of any underrepresented group early and often. 
Now, I bet you a lot of those 60% of those, of those girls, they actually had met women in STEM, but they didn't know it or there wasn't intention behind those encounters. And so I, I think one of the most basic things we can do is, and I think admissions offices in terms of recruiting as well, is to get those faces and people out there, to get the representatives from the STEM disciplines who are women in the classrooms, in the high schools, um, showing up at those enrichment camps in the summer that many universities do for, for, um, for, for high school students. Um, you know, here at, at Autodesk, we, we're trying in our own way, I and mean, we have this, this competition called Design for Industry, right, where we actually have these very cool themes and students can submit work uh, through our, um, uh, they, they can submit work online to address this theme. And our first theme was cube satellites, right? It was cute. It was like, make make a cube satellite. <laughs> I, I thought, well, when this theme, by the way, first came out, I thought, this is the most insane. Why would we choose cube satellites? <laughs> for a cube satellite. But we purposely chose as one of the um, judges, right, for the competition. One of the things you get, you get a little prize, but you also get deep, intense networking with industry leaders, which is what students really want, right? Mm -hmm. We chose Juan Cagle, who was one of the first was one of the first female astronauts. And this turned out to be a really big deal, a big driver for people submitting, um, sub and it was, an, uh, you know, submitting uh, entries, and it was how role models like this are just, their people are thirsty for them, they want them. So I think industry can do a lot, um, a lot too. And I think beyond, you know, something like design for industry, and by the way, we had like 3,500 applicants for that from around the world. It was insane, you know. Um, for a cube satellite, right? Who would a cube yeah. satellite? Um, but then we do a lot of stuff, and other Silicon Valley companies do a lot of stuff with like Girls Who Code, who, by the way, are some of the cool. I mean, I love the summer walking by the Girls Who Code. They're in there with their Arduino and coding, making stuff, and just so into it. And I think companies need to step up and do much, much more of that. Um, I also think there's inadequate teaching. There's just some really inadequate teaching going on right now in STEM and in other fields, but. That's being addressed too. University of Texas at Austin has created something called the Center for STEM Education. They're not alone. Many other places are doing it, but they're teaching teachers how to drive active learning with STEM. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just mentioned that I think, you know, the US Department of Education has come up with, oh, they've been really engaged with this for a while, where you, you want to get in there and really tweak the curriculum, especially the first year, that first year or two, but especially that first year curriculum once you've gotten them in the top of the funnel to keep them, right? And I don't think it's rocket science. I just think you have to be sensitive to the fact that um, maybe you don't have to throw 150 courses of, you know, math at them the first year. You, know? you can just <laughs> layer that in, in ways that are applied and compelling, and then build on it in the sophomore, junior, and senior year. But hook them the first year, get them excited, get them passionate. We need to move beyond majors to missions. Let's get, let's drive those missions, let's create those missions for the students that first year. Um, and I, to touch on a little bit, so not only with curriculum and um, keeping them hooked once they're in the funnel, but how about when the, with the fields and how they change so quickly? How, how should higher ed and just education in general be preparing students 
and looking at their curriculum and refreshing it to make sure that they're in line with industry and how quickly that industry is changing. Yeah, well, you know, there, 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 there are a couple of things here. I mean, I was on a, a, a panel with the guy who, uh, Mike Haley, who runs our uh, artificial intelligence, our machine learning unit, um, which is becoming a really big deal um, at Autodesk. We're building a lot of AI um, machine learning kinds of functions into our into our tools here. And he was asked, we were, it was a press panel, so you had a lot of reporters who were asking questions. And, and they were asking something along the same lines. And, and Mike said something I thought was really good. He said, you, have to, you do have to go back to first principle. So, so Aaron, I mean, I'm one of these people who really believes in expertise. I do believe in deep learning. I do believe mm -hmm. you have to know stuff deeply. And when I have interns come here, um, by the way, we have an awesome intern program for your, if, any, if there are any students out there, anybody who knows students, an awesome paid intern program. But um, our students, I want them when they come in and, and, and they're helping me do something, I want them to have a great depth of knowledge. But they also, I want them to be able to move beyond that, have the kind of soft skills and broader understandings of how to collaborate and integrate and work with other groups. And I think that one of the things that, that, that's important is to have those deep, that deep kind of inquiry-based learning that comes from learning fundamentals, right? Then, then you can take as fields are quickly changing. And I'm talking not only in school, but after you get out of school. So, I mean, I asked Mike, did you ever think you're going to be, you know, doing what you're doing in machine learning and AI? And he's like, oh, God, no. <laughs> you know, it's like, but, but I've been able to but lead because I had these sort of first, um, you know, these first, these first principles. So um, I think also regular, um, you know, regular looking back at your at your curriculum, bringing in outside groups also to do outside program reviews frequently in STEM disciplines, at least every you know two three years to have uh, formally or informally a group of people from the outside looking. What are you doing? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, if if it makes sense, bring someone from industry as well in relevant fields so that they can give you feedback. But that constant kind of feedback loop is really important to maintain. And that's something that's done, you know, through program chairs and deans, but provosts can also, I think, um, you know, can also help a little bit with that. But you know, so there's a broader question. So within that question, you also ask sort of like, how does higher ed need to change? Mm -hmm. To, to kind of drive STEM and STEAM. And, and I kind of feel like, so, so the way I look at this is, you know, universities are one of our oldest and most path-dependent institutions, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of medieval in origin, but we reimagine re them during the industrial era to serve an industrial society, right? The industrial economy. And it did that amazingly well. In fact, the entire infrastructure for our current system was created between like 1880 and 1930. Grades, standardized tests, uh, uh, linear curricula, professional disciplines, you name it. Mm -hmm. All kind of created during that period. But this was a world of what I call like learn to do. Like you learn a stock of knowledge in a stable profession, and then you apply it over the arc of your career, which is also pretty stable. And we're now in a new world. We're in a do the learn world, right? Where you need to, um, constantly be learning throughout your education but throughout your life through the application of knowledge and iterative, iteratively learning in new loops and new cycles of learning right 
And I, that's that's what I call do to learn. So if you look at learn to do is sort of like learning sheet music, right? For years before you ever pick up an instrument. Doing to learn is more like improvisation. It's like uh, improvising in the moment by applying what you know, being aware of your teammates, um, constantly kind of learning and growing by playing. And that, that in general, as just a kind of general comment, that do to learn mind frame, which make has a lot to do with that, making things, I think, mm -hmm. framework. Um, I think that's really a, a foundational idea. Move from learn to do to do to learn. Um, move from sheet music to improvisation. Um, and if you can do that and have that as a kind of North Star that's kind of guiding you forward, uh, I, I think in general you're going to be moving in the right direction. Um, just even, I mean, across the board in all disciplines, it's it's kind of impossible to stay top of your field or an expert in your career path if you're not constantly reading and updating and learning and changing. Um, I'd be irrelevant if I, in like I think a week, if I wasn't, if I didn't read all of the time or subscribe to certain blogs and uh, experts in the field because yeah. it, digital engagement changes so quickly that one minute they're here and the next minute they're somewhere else. Um, so that, yeah, that definitely and I'm a too, Aaron. I mean, it's like my, if I look at the, the arc of my career, it's just all about, it's been continual growth and continual learning. So that's why I come back to that thing. Like along with the do to learn, there's another, like if you can keep in your head, let's move from, from majors, which mm -hmm. is very industrial era way of looking at a, learning a stock of knowledge in a siloed major to from majors to missions, right? Because mission gets that idea of passionate learning. Like learning because you have to, because you want to, it's in you, you know? And I think if you can inculcate that culture of learning, um, that, that culture of learning as a mission and a passion, um, as part of the do to learn model, uh, that's another North Star. Majors to missions, <laughs> like just, Go march toward that. I like I like that. Plus, it um, it makes instead of like deciding your discipline, having a mission sounds very superhero ish and like passionate Absolutely. and empowering. It's like yes, that's what I want to do. It's my mission like, to do this with my life. Like not, it's not about the discipline. It's what you can do with the discipline, mm -hmm. right? And students today, I need to tell you, if you're in admissions, you you know this even more than I do. Th these are mission driven students they want to have impacts you know once they get over the whole being tortured to get into college thing which happens you know in high school but once they kind of leave that behind these are students who want to have an impact in the world they want to do stuff they don't care about the discipline as much they care about what the discipline is fuel for them to make a difference out there and I happen to think that's beautiful I really do I think that is a generational gift for the rest of the world. If we can harness that through STEM and STEAM and, and focus it on the things that matter, I think we all win. Oh, absolutely. It's my favorite time of the year is actually this, this time when you have people starting who are getting accepted coming into the Facebook groups and the different communities we set up and they start talking about what they're interested in, what they want to study. And you see someone who says, well, I'm really interested in storytelling and studying archaeology and history because I want to tie it back to my culture 
and be able to create a historical um, understanding of how my particular, like I see it a lot with some of our Native American students, some of our um, immigrant students and connecting that storytelling, the historical study of their family's past in this country to their education. I'm just, first of all, I'm like, wow, you're 18 and you're, you yeah. sound so smart and Amazing. understanding everything. And I was like, I just want to go to college <laughs> when I was applying. <laughs> admissions, so admissions is in an interesting place that's changed. I mean, I was, I was in admissions for two years, like for, in another era at Wesleyan University. So I kind of, but it's in a different place now where you're painting pictures, not only of um, what people can do with disciplines, in school and what that feels like and what that will be like through storytelling to them. But mm -hmm. I was like, what, what is this going to mean to your life over the arc of your career? And I'm, you know, professional, there's that professional piece that students are very interested in today. But, but what does that profession mean in terms of your ability to have impact in the world? And I think that is, that is a privileged position for anybody to be in with a high school student. I think admissions offices, that's where you are. That's mm -hmm. what you can do. And in the process, transform these students' lives as they're coming into college. Help them begin to build that narrative about where they're going, why they're going there, what it means, what impacts they can have. You know? Absolutely. And we've touched on this a little bit more, but um, how do you think admissions and higher ed in general could have more uh, involvement in the K-12 STEM efforts, yeah. and even if they should? Um, and yeah. if so, what does that kind of look like or what's the future of that in your opinion? Well, I think they have to. I really do. I mean, I think like this is an era, this is like higher ed is so typically siloed, right? It's, it, it really is. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's getting better, but it's, it's still synonymous for higher ed is silo. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very silo, but I think admissions, um, you know, admissions is also historically, it's kind of reached across many different facets of the university just by virtue of its position. But I think admissions really has to lock arms more and more with the academic side in order to begin to tell that story. And I, I think that that storytelling, it's not just when the students come to you, right? But it's you going to them. And I look, your institution, most really good uh, universities today are reaching into high schools and trying various things. But I think part of that going into high school, it's not just having, yes, the role model go into the STEM class and talk about STEM and what it means and being a judge and all that, which is very, very, very important. And talking about what the implications are of, of STEM, but it's also helping together with, with that visitor, uh, admissions locking arms to tell that story about mm -hmm. what it means to you um, and how with the inputs that we can give you, we can help transform your life in order for you to live that story or to at least continue developing the story for yourself in a way that's kind of compelling. Um, there's there's a, 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 a book that just came out by Bill Burnett called um, Design Your Life. He's from the D School down at Stanford. We do a lot of work with them. And um, he's, he's, that's kind of what it's all about, right? It's developing, it's developing that story about your life and then proactively designing it and coming up with little experiments to um, prototype and test your hypotheses and assumptions about what you want to do. What if admissions started that process, right? What if admissions, and then college was a process of 
you know, deep learning, but continually helping students design their lives. So that when they got to graduation, it was not something scary. It was like the opening of this truly new, exciting, intentional chapter in your life. Not like, well, I'm going to be recruited by someone. So I think I'm going to go to graduate school. It's like, no, I want to, this is my mission, you know, that I've defined over these years. I think that's the future of higher ed, frankly, you know, at a certain level with a certain uh, kind of institution, certain kind of university. That book is actually on my to-do read or to-read list. So I'm I'm glad to hear your recommendation. I, I have a very long I, list of books I, to read. I, I actually thought it was so important that we brought him up to um, Autodesk. We had a lunch with him and I interviewed him. And he was a really compelling guy, very smart. And I really do highly recommend the book. It's a user's guide book, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, but it, it'd be really great. I think for admissions, actually it's, I hadn't thought about it before now, but potent as a way of, uh, as a kind of framework for working with students to develop those intentional pathways and stories. Yeah, I um, it caught my attention on a personal level, and then the more I was looking into it, I was like, oh, this might actually be professional also, uh, that I can okay. apply some of this. And then we're reaching the end of our time, but I have one last question I'd like to ask you. Sure. Um, you mentioned briefly the University of Texas Austin and what they're doing, but are there other higher ed examples yeah. or academic examples of integrating STEM and recruiting STEM that has caught your attention or even outside of higher ed, just the the maker spaces, the different things across the country that we're doing to try and empower these these this new generation of makers and doers and engineers. Well, the informal learning piece is really important. So um, hackathons, uh, designs forums, maker spaces, all that kind of thing. I think those are trends that are just beginning to gel now, but I actually think they're incredibly important. Maker spaces are also one of these sort of new things. We haven't really figured out what they mean yet, but we know they're important, particularly <laughs> for 17. So I think maker spaces, uh, ways of intentionally bringing in that kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning, which is so important um, in STEM and STEAM into this generation. I think that that's, that's a, a trend I keep an eye on. And I would, I'll come back to the Maryland Institute College of Art, that, ecosystem they're creating in Baltimore with makerspaces and Johns Hopkins, other institutions and businesses. That's the kind of thing that really is beginning to kind of rethink the whole paradigm of higher ed, right? And the way it reaches out into communities and kind of how it works, bringing together informal and formal networks and so on. But there's a bunch of other stuff. The, I'm just gonna, UT Austin's also, by the way, doing something great. Their women in engineering program, that's a way of bringing uh, female mentors to high school students. I'm all for the mentorship and role model thing. MIT has this thing called the PK or the Pre-K 12 Action Group. They've been doing really interesting stuff, taking a holistic view of how you bring in somebody to STEM, how you introduce them to STEM, how you um, develop them over a period of time with STEM, and then what happens to them after they graduate. And I'd say also, the Maryland, uh, two Maryland institutions are interesting. University of Maryland, Baltimore County has something called STEM Build, mm -hmm. which is another one of these big integrative frameworks for looking at um, registration, admissions, curriculum, uh, advising, support, career services. It's a, they got a big grant, by the way, from the, uh, what is it, the, the, I think it was the National Institute of Medicine, Institutes of Medicine. Oh. 
like 18 million dollars for this so there's money out there for these integrative holistic approaches to looking at how to support them because in the end i think that'll be very important the last thing i would mention is um look instead of just um going into a high school why not create a high school so purdue mm -hmm. uh, polytechnic which is a, a really interesting part of Purdue university they just created a stem high school and they're using that as a feeder and a pipeline to Purdue and to other schools, but they're also learning a huge amount about STEM students yeah. of running that high school. And I think that learning feeding back into their world and then through uh, academic dissemination, more broadly into higher ed, I would love to see much more of that kind of audacity. Like, mm -hmm. let's just create <laughs> a high school. Yeah. yeah let's why not you know and I mean like you mentioned the data that they'll be able to provide themselves and then at large the higher ed academic world is gonna be amazing <laughs> yeah. um, well yeah. oh, go ahead so, I just want to say one of the last things I would say is, is simply that um I do think that businesses we need to keep an eye on what they're doing. I mean, we we have we do a lot here on our Design Academy website with STEM and STEAM. There's like 70,000 people on there. They can, there's a community of people who are thinking about these things. We've got learning materials, you can download stuff. But I think, uh, I think for-profit businesses really have got to get more skin in the game here in terms of developing STEM and STEAM in ways that are relevant and drive that kind of passionate learning that we're all looking for. They have to because because their future depends on it, right? Yes, I, that's the slowly, more increasingly noticeable, undeniable fact. <laughs> um, but that's all the time we have today. So thank you, as always, to our program sponsors, Chag and M. Stoner, and a huge thank you to you, Randy, for joining me. Um, I loved this conversation. I, it was so much fun. It was fun. I, I enjoy what most of them are always fun, but I love when they're very conversational. Uh, I learn so much and I try not to let my personal, like just interest and, oh, tell me more about that, mm -hmm. completely control the conversation, but this was fabulous. And a huge thank you to our viewers who joined us on this Monday afternoon. Um, I won't be seeing any of you until after the new year. So happy holidays and happy 2017. Yeah, everybody, happy holidays, happy <laughs> breaks.